Welcome to Mind the Shift. I'm your host, Anders Bolling. This is a podcast where we try to understand how our minds shift in a shifting world. The scope is broad, and after exploring somewhat esoteric realms, we'll be a bit more down to earth in this episode, but we will dwell on a subject that we have been touching on several times in, on this podcast, namely money. So I am very happy and honored to have Branko Milanovic as my guest today. He's one of the world's leading economists and definitely a front runner in the research about inequality. Branko Milanovic got his PhD in economics at the University of Belgrade in 1987. He was a lead economist at the World Bank for almost 20 years. He's been a scholar at several universities in the US, in Britain and in Spain. And currently, he is a visiting presidential professor at the City University in New York. And Branko has written several groundbreaking books on the topic of inequality and economic systems. And the latest one is called Capitalism Alone from 2019. Welcome to the show, Branko. Well, thank you very much, Anders. It's actually a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. We will, of course, talk a lot about your research, and uh, I mean, there's enough to fill hours there already, but hopefully we can also look a bit, a little bit into the philosophical and maybe utopian aspects of this unequal society that we're living in. Now, I said before groundbreaking, I mentioned the word groundbreaking and groundbreaking books and groundbreaking research, and, and that was uh, actually in the literal sense of the word, because as far as I understand, when you started researching inequality, there was no real place for that subject in academia and you, you, you didn't even know where to file your first studies. Is that correct? Yes, I think broadly speaking, it is correct with obviously with some qualifications, you know. Of course, the work on inequality did exist. Uh, I mean, in the, in the sense of this interpersonal inequality that I work on, it existed at least from Pareto, which is at the turn of the, of the 20th century. But then, of course, it became less frequently used during the high sort of season or, you know, essentially during the period of the 1960s and the 70s. It was a topic that was a little bit left aside. It was done in a very theoretical way. There was very few empirical works. And uh, there were, of course, also ideological and also, uh, how should I say, theoretical within economics reasons why people were not concerned about inequality. Just to mention for the theoretical reasons, if, if your view of the world is essentially a you know, general equilibrium view of the world, then uh, prices are determined on, by, on the market. So including the prices of factors of production, you know, your wage, your return to capital and so forth. And on the other hand, the endowments with which you come to the market, meaning your skills, or the amount of capital that you have are kind of outside of that purview. So it was the general equilibrium theory would say, well, that's something that we don't deal with. So these are exogenous givens. So we don't really deal with how much human skills you have when we do simply general equilibrium and decide what is the, the price of your labor. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me just say one in one area, uh, my work, I think, is it was among the first, and that was global inequality. And of course, the reasons there are not so much ideological, they are more empirical, uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, we didn't have the data from 100 plus countries from household surveys that are needed to, to do, you know, a global income distribution. We didn't have them until at least mid 
1980s or even actually early 1990s. So that there the reason was really uh, an empirical. Mm -hmm. So, well, when, when it comes to global inequality, it was, of course, obvious to anyone who wanted to look that there were some countries that were extremely rich and some countries that were very poor. It was not difficult to see that. So it would have been, and maybe you know, it was so they could even see that, that it, it, the gap was widening. Right. But what was actually difficult to see is uh, to have the data that would confirm that. Obviously, it was quite known, actually, the development economics was born out of the realization that, of course, some countries like Sweden is rich and India is poor. But uh, what you needed for global income inequality, you needed also distributions within the countries. So in other words, you really needed to put the entire world in one distribution, as it were, which meant that you had to have household survey data or later, actually, for example, PKT use were uh, data on the top of the income distribution from tax uh, sources uh, for each individual country. And that was not something easy. And, I, and uh, you know, most of Africa in the 1980s didn't have such data and still there are actually problems there. The Soviet Union didn't publish this data and China started actually having surveys only in 1984. So that was the reason that we basically started from scratch in the, in the late 1980s. Okay, so we just had the Davos meeting as we record this. Uh, we are a few days after the, the, the divorce meeting, which was probably more uh, electronic this year, I guess, than normally. Uh, but anyway, the issue, issue of inequality often arises during these meetings when those meetings are, are held. And I think probably every year since 2013, the so-called elephant graph has been debated uh, in Davos and around Davos uh, around this time of year. And this graph was uh, created by you and Christoph Lachner, was it? That's yeah. right. Yeah. So can you just briefly, and it, it's, it was, it's been, it's very famous uh, among people who, who know some things about inequality and, and the studies around this. So can you just briefly explain what it shows and tell us also how it stands its ground today, so to speak, and if it is reshaping itself or not? You see, the graph was done using uh, what you can call longitudinal, meaning that actually the data for individual countries followed over time. And then you put all these countries together and basically you follow, uh, you follow the change in the income distribution in the world. Uh, Christoph and I actually were to some extent lucky that the, the graph covered exactly the years that were ideal to be covered from 1988 to 2008. Now, 1988, of course, everybody would recognize that's just a year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism, we have entirely different economic landscape in the whole world, practically. And then 2008 is just the year of the financial crisis. So when we did it, we were not driven necessarily by that. We were driven by the data availability again, but it just happened to fit extremely well that period of what you might call, you know, high globalization. Yeah. And why did the graph become so famous? Essentially because it highlights something that intuitively, I think many of us knew, but we didn't have the data. We couldn't really put that in, in numbers. And the, the, the first point in the graph is that people in Asia and particularly in China 
which are at around the middle of the global income distribution, have done extremely well. So, you know, that was known, you know, it was not something that the graph revealed, but what the graph revealed was their position in a global income distribution, because these people in China uh, were only at the middle of the global income distribution. They are not nearly as rich as the Western middle class. But mm -hmm. the, the second point highlighted by the graph was that the people who were indeed richer than those Chinese or Asians in the middle were the European and West European and uh, American uh, middle classes or lower middle classes. And these people, while being relatively rich globally, are, as the name says, in the lower parts of their country's income distributions. And they have not had almost any growth. So that was this shocking thing when you see on a single graph, you see the rise of China and really sort of a sluggishness or stagnation of Western incomes. And then finally, the third point, which is also striking, is that at the very top of the global income distribution, variously either top 1% or you know, top 5%, you had very significant increases in, in real income. So these mm. are really the three points which you know, caught for a good reason, you know, people's imagination, because really it showed the position of Western middle classes to be squeezed between mm. rising Asia on the one hand and sort of maybe uh, their own compatriots who didn't particularly much care about, uh, you know, what happened to their own middle classes. So it, it was said to explain more or less the uh, the resentment, the seeming resentment among the, the middle class and working class in the United States and in many Western European countries uh, protesting and, and voting for so-called populist parties. So do you agree that it actually did explain that or, or did, did, did show that in a graphic form? Yeah, I, I do agree, actually. And I do agree with that, not because that was the graph that Christopher and I developed, but because I think that really highlights this essential contradiction of the high globalization, which still continues. And we'll talk in a minute how the graph might have changed now. Uh, but this is the really basic contradiction. It highlights the fact that many people in rich countries have to fight for their jobs uh, against uh, people who can do these jobs equally well and be paid much less in poorer countries. It could be, you know, obviously countries like China or Burma or India, Indonesia, but it could be also countries in Eastern Europe that uh, actually were pretty competitive with respect to German wages or Austrian wages or even French wages. So, you know, this is a general phenomenon of globalization. And I think it also highlights quite well the fact that the global plutocracy between, uh, two, uh, between 1988 and 2008, and that was something that actually was revealed by this graph and by many other studies. Yeah. So has, has it, uh, it, it has been debated, of course, and, and there are other economists out there that, 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 that uh, question whether it actually shows what you say it's showing and, and, and all that. And, but can you say that after 2008, which was the last year that you had data for that graph, things have changed a little bit or maybe it has uh, moved the, 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 the trunk of the, of the yes. elephant has perhaps moved a little bit or, or maybe the, the back of the elephant? Yes, I have to actually make three points there. First, I have updated this graph up to 2013. 
okay. so what happened then is that you really don't have the trunk, the, the top, actually, the top 1% is no longer uh, growing at the rates at which it was growing before. That was the major change, simply because the financial crisis was really not good for the capital incomes of the very top 1%. And yeah. we have to also realize that people in the top 1% are mostly still composed of people from the rich countries. You know, when you do graph like that, you're not really capturing uh, billionaires from Shanghai, nor are you capturing Jeff Bezos, nor, you know, Jack Ma. They are not in the survey. But you're capturing rich, very rich affluent uh, groups from rich, from whether rich countries or Brazil or Russia or China. Now, of course, still predominantly, that very top is composed of people from the rich countries. It is changing, and I'll talk about that maybe later. But that group did not have a good period between 2008 and 2013. Afterwards, however, for which I don't have the data, but I have fragmentary data because they have the US data, for example, or West European data, there was a recovery at the top 1%. So we shall see when and if I do the same study up to 2018, how mm -hmm. the recovery has you know, proceeded or not. Then of course we have to take into account that now we are in an entirely different world because of COVID. So mm -hmm. you know, there are many uh, mm -hmm. factors that have happened in the meantime. I want also to mention the following thing because that's something that's important. It's not often realized. As China becomes richer, you are never going, even if you have the same underlying movements in the graph, you're not going to get the elephant shape again because Chinese population is moving higher up in the income distribution. So they are not going to stay in the middle of where they were when I did my original graph. They are going to start replacing, uh, substituting for people who are higher placed. So, you know, that, that middle, which was so uh, sort of striking in the original graph by its very high level of income, that middle now is going to move to, not to be in the middle, but to be at the 70th or 80th percentile. So, you know, mm. people should not expect that the, the shape will forever stay a shape of, a, of an elephant. We will have to call it something different, an, another animal, perhaps, a different animal in the future. We'll talk uh, more about the, the inequality that is uh, within countries and, and, and the inequality that is between countries. And the, the former is, is increasing and the latter is decreasing, uh, speaking generally, as far as I understand. Uh, to, to, to talk about the, the, the big picture here, the, or, or the, the most striking examples that you can get, you know, we said that we just had a Davos meeting. And during this time of year, every year, organizations like Oxfam, for instance, they, they shout out mind-blowing examples of econ economic inequality, like only eight men own as, as much as half of the world's population. And this is really salient, of course, and shocking. So it's an excellent example to use. But I, I, can, I can tend to be a bit skeptical to that kind of extreme examples. And you start to, you start to think, what does this really mean? So my question is, how, how, useful, how useful are these examples and how relevant is such a comparison, would you say? Uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, these numbers that Oxfam is producing, my position is a little bit in the middle of the two extremes. You know, some people who, of course, are quite unhappy with the 
with what Oxfam shows and other people who are actually very much um, uh, in favor of it. Now, let me explain why, because I think that originally when Oxfam was doing that, it, it made lots of sense to actually uh, uh, give a very graphic illustration of huge differences in wealth. So this is not income, actually, they, they, they focused on wealth. And it mm. is true, you know, that most of the people in the world have zero or quasi zero wealth, you know, even including people in rich countries, because many people, as you know, in rich countries can borrow and they might even have negative wealth. So, mm. you know, that's all true. And on the other hand, there was an incredible uh, concentration of wealth among the billionaire, uh, billionaires at the very top of the income distribution. But I was uh, somewhat skeptical and I was not in favor of producing every year a new number that would be ever more striking for mm. the following reason. I thought that there would be a year when actually you would have to retract. In other words, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if it is 20 people who have as much as one half of the humankind or 18 or uh, uh, six. You know, yeah. the, the gaps are so tremendous that that mm. particular number really has no meaning. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid that at one point where we move from six people having like half of the world wealth to eight people, uh, other people who actually are against Oxfam would say, look, things are improving. But of course, it's ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. you know, whether yes. you pick an eight, it doesn't yeah. make any difference. So I was saying to Oxfam, uh, you know, don't do it every year the same, because eventually you would actually have to start explaining to people that whether it is six or eight is all the same. Um, mm. Anyway, they continued with that. And of course, this year is very special because of, uh, of COVID and mm. because of uh, really an incredible accumulation of wealth, as you know, among the people who own the companies like Amazon and others. So I think this year is very special and I'm in this year in favor of like highlighting that difference in fortunes or in fates between really the essential workers and obviously many people in less developed countries who got to work regardless of the epidemic. And on the other hand, people at the very top who have made incredible amounts of money. So I think this year is in that sense, a very unique for you know obvious reasons. Maybe we should take that question now. I had it for later, but but I, I want to ask you about the pandemic and what it entails for inequality in the world because it's it's not very easy to to um, encompass to to understand as a layman when you look at it. I mean, as you say, some some in some respects inequality seems to be rising, but in others it seems to be diminishing because uh, many companies go bust. And I, I don't know. So so what's what's your take on it? You know, it's very difficult to say now. We are first in the midst of the pandemic still. And, uh, you know, things are changing. Let me just give you an example. There was a very nice paper by Angus Deaton that actually looked at the global effects of, of the pandemic. And there, actually, what Angus has found is uh, first that you had larger uh, losses in real GDP among the countries that had higher mortality rates. So in other words, the countries which actually were more affected by the pandemic. Now, it turns out that the countries with higher mortality rates are richer countries, you know, countries that were supposed to do well, but that's a different story. They did Mm. pretty poorly. Uh, Mm. So that essentially means that the losses of GDP were greater among rich countries, and that by itself would tend to reduce, for example, global inequality. However, 
And that's why it becomes very complicated. And I think it's almost too early to speak about that. However, the fact that China has done pretty well and that India has not done well because India is expected to have had 10% decline in GDP and mm. China 2% and a half increase. Uh, that means that China has actually uh, started contributing to global inequality because it is pulling away from other poorer and very opposite populous countries like India or Nigeria or Sudan or Congo or Indonesia. So that actually reverses the previous tendency and pushes inequality unexpectedly up. So you see, that's the, 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 what the, uh, Angus Dayton's paper says. But mm. you know, we are still not at the end of the pandemic. And some people have pointed out, it could be as the pandemic now starts really raging in Africa, that the losses of real income among the poor countries begin to be very high. In which case this original, the first one that I mentioned, this original regularity between the loss of income being higher among rich countries may be reversed. So mm. that's why I want to say it's, I think, too early to, to really make, uh, you know, big time conclusions. That's, that's, uh, that's discussing the, the inequality, levels of inequality between countries on a global level. What if you look at the, uh, the inequality situation within, within countries? Uh, with respect you to know, the, there too, I mean, I've been reading about that. I have not done any work myself. That there are no actual data, precise data that because we will not have survey for probably another half a year or maybe even longer. Mm. Uh, but there you also face contradictory movements. Let me, let me explain. First of all, uh, the general perception and some data that we have show that uh, essential workers, uh, people who were in the lower parts of the income distribution, first, first there is no doubt that they were more affected by, you know, in health-wise and also by death rates, but also they had to work uh, physically to be present in their workplaces. Or if there is no work, of course, then they would lose the income. So that would tend to indicate, uh, broadly speaking, that people who are essential workers lost People, mm. you know, like me and you and others who mm. could actually work from can work home from home. Yeah, mm. they didn't lose anything. They actually mm. the incomes remain more or less the same. And the people who were at the very top, you know, particularly people uh, who whose income dependent on capital and the stock market in the U.S. has been doing well, might have gained. So the conventional interpretation of these facts is that income inequality must have gone up. Now, it's quite possible, but one has to take into account also massive government stimulus or yes. stimuli because there were several yeah. rounds. And that stimulus very often went to the people at the lower part of the income distribution. And in some cases, the incomes that they received from the government transfers more than compensated their incomes which they had previously to the crisis. So it is not impossible that even some incomes on the bottom went up. And then really we are, it's not very easy then to figure out whether inequality might have gone up or down. In any case, the shape of the changes in income distribution was quite dramatic. And we have never seen anything like that, like what happened in 2020. No, it was really extreme. And and talking about these st stimuli, as you as you mentioned here, it's it was really fascinating the way that they were, that that politicians suddenly decided on on 
showering the economy with, with these billions and billions of dollars that, that, I mean, two years ago would have been considered completely crazy. <laughs> but they just did it. And all of a sudden, the, there was money created out of thin air, as, as, as it always is, which is interesting in, in, in itself, in and of itself. But that's, that's a different story. Right. So going back to, the, to this um, thing about um, the Oxfam uh, comparison that eight, eight people own as much as half of the, the global population. There is a, a Peruvian economist uh, whom you might know personally, I don't know, but Hernando de Soto. He's, uh, he's, he's also, also a very, very famous uh, economist and he, he studies these things a lot too. And he thinks, he says, that assets in poor countries are underestimated because they're, they're not formally registered. So it's actually a, a skewed picture or image that we have of, of the uh, distribution of wealth in, wealth in the world because if th they were to register what they had in the form of land or small houses or whatever, uh, it would be a different story. Do you agree? No, I, I definitely, certainly I agree actually. There are lots of assets that are uh, belonging to the poor people and they are not uh, registered. And actually, of course, as you know, his work has focused quite a lot on that. Uh, to be quite honest, I don't think that it would make a huge difference. We are actually talking about uh, lots of people, but you know, the assets per themselves, well, it is, I don't think that it would actually make much of a dent in the total picture, simply because, mm -hmm. you know, you take favelas, you know, yes, people do not have registered you know, they're housing there and it's not actually on their name. If you were to add that, of course, they would not have a zero net wealth. They would have some positive net wealth. But would it really make a big change in the picture? I doubt. But, you know, it, it needs to be done, actually. If uh, uh, Hernando believes that it is a big difference, uh, you know, I think at least for Latin America, that, that should be doable to estimate what difference would it make. Well, I guess it comes down to the amount of people that you're talking about here. If it's, I mean, globally could be billions of people. So if, if you, if you uh, ascribe um, $20 to 2 billion people, that's, that's a lot of money in, on the total, so to speak, when you compare with these eight super rich men or whatever. So anyway, but I understand that that it probably doesn't make a big dent in the in the big story. So this is my guess. You know, I have not done any work on that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there is actually. Maybe it would make a difference. Uh, I, as I said, I don't think in terms of the ratios between top and bottom that it would be so huge. But it really is something that it needs to be done empirically. Yeah. So we talked about the, uh, the pandemic and what uh, effects it might have on inequality within countries, which uh, we still uh, need to wait until we can understand what really happened. Uh, so that's gonna be really interesting. But, but on, on, up until 2020, it's been the general, general uh, uh, evolution of things here that, that inequality, or at least for a few decades, inequality between countries has diminished while inequality within countries has, has increased. So uh, the, the reason why inequality between countries has gone down is of course, mainly because of the rise of China and, and also some other countries like Mexico, Brazil, and India, but mainly China, as far as I understand. And so what, what, what importance would you ascribe to the rise of Asia which, I mean, it's China, but it's also India and Indonesia and, and, and many of the so-called tiger economies uh, over there in the East. 
the rise of Asia relative to Europe and America. What importance would you ascribe to the rise of Asia relative to Europe and America? And is Africa also poised to rise close to Asian levels? Two, two questions in one, but I think you can answer it in-, in Okay, on the first question, the you know, it is a simple answer. Uh, really the global inequality decline is really driven entirely by Asia. Uh, what is happening is of course that Asia started, and when we speak of Asia, obviously it includes mostly countries that are relatively poor in 1980s, like Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, China, uh, India. And they started as relatively poorer countries and because they had a rate of rates of growth that were quite high from India from 1991, it's actually, as you know, it sort of accelerated quite a lot from China since 1978, for Vietnam since the mid eighties. Um, they actually uh, grew significantly. And if you have the middle or the lower part of the income distribution, global income distribution in this case, growing fast, that obviously reduces in a, a divergence between the rich world and the rest of, the, of those countries, mostly in Asia, and reduces global inequality. So there is no doubt about that. Uh, moreover, what is actually happening is rebalancing of the world in the sense that uh, relative incomes of Asia are now catching up to the position with compared to Europe where they were before the Industrial Revolution. In other words, if you look at the, around 1500, 1600, and I was recently, because I'm writing uh, hopefully a book on that, looking at, for example, perceptions of China among the early Euro European economies, like for example, Kenne and Adam Smith as well. Uh, their perception of China was that it was relatively stationary compared to the you know, industrial revolution in England, but at the level of, in of income, which was the same or actually higher than in many parts of Europe. So we have, that was basically the position of China uh, from you know, 10th century onward to the industrial revolution. And then of course the Europeans had this incredible increase in incomes and military power and economic power. And the two centuries that happened between the industrial revolution and now were to a large extent an anomaly because Europe and North America were so much richer. So what we are now seeing is really a return within the greater Eurasian continent to the distribution of incomes, relative incomes, which existed, you know, before the Industrial Revolution. In other words, mm -hmm. where China and India and Japan were not behind Europe. And that, of, of course, then reduces inequality. Now, you ask a question, which is a very pertinent one and which is a crucial one. Where is Africa in that picture? Now, yes. Africa did not play that much of a role so far because population-wise, it was not so big. But Africa is now the continent, as we all know, which is really the only one growing at growing at really rates of more than 2% per annum uh, in terms of population. So it will become larger and larger and we play a much bigger role. And that means that without convergence of African incomes, we will have two big negative effects. First one, we would actually continue with large migration flows mostly to Europe. And secondly, we would have an increase in global inequality. So that really now puts, I think, Africa at the center stage of, mm. um, of development, if you will. There's also this problem. Well, I, I've actually written a little bit about Africa in, in a book, uh, not as uh, insightful as, as, as your books, uh, I, I, I'm sure. But anyway, I realized that it was about the, the window of opportunity for Africa now and, and the possibility of a 
demographic dividend, as, the, as, as it's called, uh, which is still there, but it's, it's, it's not certain that they will have one. But I realized that it's very, very tough to catch up. There's a problem of catching up if you're a poor country to catch up to, uh, uh, to rich countries, because I mean, the rich countries are still growing, albeit at a lower uh, rate, of course, but I mean, a, a growth of one or 2% in a very rich country means a lot of dollars for every percent. And if you're a country that is dirt poor from the, from the start, you know, from the beginning, you can have, you can have a GDP growth of 10% a year, and it's still going to take you decades. I mean, you can't even really understand how long time it's going to take until this country catches up. And that's, I was a bit uh, disheartened when I realized that. And it also goes for, I guess, for China, but to a lesser extent, because, I mean, isn't there a, a natural decrease in the rate of, of growth once you get very uh, much richer? So China couldn't, I mean, continue having growth rates of 10% until it is almost as rich as, say, France or Germany. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, well, what you're saying is that if you're very poor, if you have 10% rate of growth, you, you might actually get $100 per capita, you know, uh, I mean, in, in your country. On the other hand, a rich country can grow by one-tenth or 1% and has, you know, more than $100 per person. So absolute mm -hmm. gaps would increase. However, we actually, when we work with inequality, we work with relative gaps. And I think there is a reason to work with relative gaps, which are basically ratios between the countries. Uh, because in the beginning, of course, it's extremely difficult and uh, you might even get discouraged. But look at China. China was, of course, very poor in 1978. And then from 40 years of growth, obviously, it has caught up and simply now, the gains of you know five percent or six percent or whatever are very substantive or substantial yeah. even in absolute terms. So yeah. you know the same in uh, you know should be possible for Africa. However, I have mm -hmm. to say, Africa faces several issues, uh, and I don't want to speak of Africa as like one country because obviously there's no. a few <laughs> countries in not. Africa. But I would like to focus on large countries because that's where the big change. If it is to come, it has to come mm. from big countries like um, Nigeria, Ethiopia, mm. uh, Sudan, um, um, Congo, uh, South Africa, which, which is not that, I mean, it's big in population, but it's also big in terms, terms of GDP. So these are like five or six countries where it's really crucial. And if you include the whole continent, then of course you should add Egypt as well. Uh, and these countries need then in the very back of the envelope calculation, they need to grow by something like seven to eight percent, which means two percent because of population and five percent approximately on per capita basis, in order to engender some level of catch up. And as you were saying before, to have the gains, which would also in absolute terms become substantial. You know, but growing for two generations at such a rate of growth is really not easy. So that's where we are now, you know. Uh, I hope that we are actually uh, found uh, by history to have been maybe unduly pessimistic because maybe that Africa would be able to match what Asia has done. But I think it's really quite important that, uh, that it does. Mm. Uh, to this equation, uh, you might add also migration. And I know that in your last book, I haven't uh, read it, unfortunately. I've, re I've read the, the 35 free pages that you can read online and also listen to a very interesting uh, lecture that you held about it in uh, at the London School of Economics. 
And so I know you 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 write a little bit about, uh, or maybe a lot about migration as 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 one tool, as one one part of the solution to to, uh, to to narrow the gap between the poorest and the richest countries. And you have some ideas about around that. I'm also very interested in migration myself. In the, in the book that I mentioned about Africa, I we have a me and my co-writer, we we had a whole chapter on on migration because. Uh, you see all these rickety boats on the Mediterranean with with Africans trying to get to, to to Europe and many European politicians they don't know why they are leaving they they think it's because they are dirt poor and because they're they come from countries where there is a conflict but that's actually not true they 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 are mainly people who are not very poor they have money in their pockets and they have mobile phones and they know how life is in Europe and uh, you know all about this they have aspirations in life so anyway it's probably probable very probable that that migration is going to continue when these countries get a little bit less poor that's that's my understanding and but you have some ideas on how to make this feasible because uh, yeah, because, yeah. Andrew, as you're saying of course uh, uh, people who are dirt poor uh, they don't migrate simply because they don't have any income to make it anywhere and of course. of course as you know i mean you have written about that uh, in order to move to Europe, you also have to pay to people who are going to move you there. So nobody is going to move you for free. Uh, so it is really not the very bottom. It is people who are above that level, uh, which means that also people have argued that there is a kind of an in inverted U-shape migration story, that you have an increase of migration when things start getting better because you're simply able to start moving. Uh, exactly. And then, of course, if things continue getting better, then you have less of incentive to move because you can actually also make money at home. So, yes, I think that actually migration pressures would continue, uh, not only because of this U-shaped curve, uh, in, uh, inverted U-shaped curve, but because the gaps in income between uh, um, Europe and Africa and, and are enormous. If you take some you know, ordinary person, like suppose somebody who could be a bus driver or you know, in Africa or, or in Europe, uh, he is making in Europe uh, something be between five and 10 times as much in real terms as he may be making in you know, uh, Kinshasa or Nairobi or you know, Abuja or whatever. Uh, so that's a huge incentive. And, you know, we have to realize it's the same thing if, if you were to tell somebody in Sweden who is investing, you tell them like, well, why don't you invest here in Sweden for, you know, return of 1%? Why do you go and invest in, uh, let's suppose, Indonesia at 10? Well, he's going to tell you, are you nuts? Obviously, I want to invest in Indonesia at 10 rather than in, in Sweden <laughs> at 1. I mean, it's it's... Likewise, a worker who is rather going to be paid, you know, 2,000 euros than 200 euros would actually tend to come to Europe. Uh, so I actually, you know, I personally, I don't want to go into all the details now because it's going to take too much time, but I'm personally uh, in favor of really migration in the same way that capital moves during globalization. However, I'm also cognizant of the fact that there was quite a lot of resistance among the native population for many reasons, including fear of jobs, fear of um, uh, reduced wages because of the labor pressure, and also some cultural issues uh, on which, by the way, the, the welfare state is originally built. You know, I can go on that later, but I would leave it at this point. So my fear then is that if we just accept that kind of uh, 
uh, how should I say, reticence to accept migrants, we might actually end up in a situation where we basically have fortress Europe and close ourselves. Uh, so the, the compromise, the middle solution, in my view, was to, uh, way, to find ways in which people would be able to migrate to Europe to make money, to send some money back and actually them themselves later to go back to their countries after acquiring skills and connections in Europe. But they would not have an open way to uh, citizenship and to staying permanently in the countries of migration. So that was the idea that actually you would have something like a circular migration. Yes, circular migration is something that we used to have before the, yes. the frontier barriers were, were became uh, more difficult to to cross. Um, so that would, yeah, I agree. Um, but but is, you also circular migration, for example, in Germany, but it was based on the voluntary on the idea of the voluntary return. Mm. Gastarbeiter. Uh, yeah. Under this circular migration, that would not be based on the voluntary that would be based on you having the right for any specific job that was open to you for five years. After five years, you go back. So it's not the voluntary, you know, when Germany opened itself up in the 1950s and 60s, the idea was that people would come to Germany, they would work in Germany, and then they would go back. But, you know, many of them did not go back. No, of course. Uh... So what do you think about the, the, the risk uh, that the, the, there is an A and a B team, so to speak, in the population that, the, yeah, many people are no, it's, it's skeptical towards solution. this? It does actually lead to, to, um, to discrimination to some extent, not in terms of job, because I think that actually there must not be any difference when it comes to workers' rights because mm. these people who are immigrants have to have, when it comes to work, exactly the same pay, uh, uh, conditions and everything else. However, it's true, they would be to some extent second order citizens. Actually, I call them not to, I don't want to put, uh, you know, sort of fake words. Uh, I just, I, I call them in the book sub-citizens because mm -hmm. they would not have the citizenship rights that the others would have. So that's not an ideal solution, but the advantages of that solution, and I actually discuss both disadvantages and advantages in the book, uh, the advantage of that is that people will have jobs, would make money, would become less poor, would send remittances back home, would make connections, and these connections hopefully would be useful for their further work when they return home. So, you know, there are certain pluses there as well. Mm. Yes, well, the, the mere fact that they are... The these very, very poor people are migrating to a richer country and making so many much more money than they would be able to do at home is uh, reducing inequality in, in, in itself, of course. But it's difficult to see from, from a standpoint of a, an ordinary person in, in, in the rich country that receives these migrants. But yeah. So again, uh, talking about the, the inequalities that, that supposedly is Inequality that supposedly is rising in within countries, I, from a maybe a bit philosophical standpoint, but also down to earth standpoint. There, there is new technology, and there are new, there are innovations all the time, inventions, and there is a general improvement of living standards, which is which has been increasing enormously during the 20th century, of course, and is still continuing today. And are these changes? in any way do you think challenging the methods of measuring wealth and inequality? Because I mean, the de facto difference 
between people who are considered poor in, a rel in relative terms in a rich country and people who are on paper maybe a thousand times richer. Uh, that, that difference uh, is perhaps less meaningful today than it was uh, the corresponding gap was say 200 years ago. Today, the difference in lifestyle, if you see what I mean, is perhaps often more a difference in degree than in kind. I mean, everyone has an iPhone, every, every, everyone has the same information about what's happening in the world. Everyone has running water and TV sets and cars and, you know, all these things. So, I mean, I could have, I could, if I had Bill Gates' wealth, I could pr probably own three helicopters, but I don't want three helicopters. I mean, you, you get my point. Yes, let me let me answer this in a minute, but I would like simply to say one more thing about the previous question, if I may, uh, okay, because, sure. about the migration, because sure, I sure. want to address one thing that often is a sort of uh, put as a counter argument to what they were saying. Uh, many people saying, you know, we live in, a, you know, um, rule of law countries and we really want everybody who comes to our country to have the equal rights and to have rights to potentially become a citizen. And I think that's actually very nice and actually I have no, I, I'm admiring that. However, there is a, a certain amount of hypocrisy in that because essentially what it says in real world is I am very comfortable if out of 100 migrants, I have three and these three become Swedes or Norwegians or you know, Americans and they have all the rights that the Americans and Swedes and Norwegians have. And I feel very myself comfortable and at ease. But I forget also 97 others who actually did not get in here and have none of these rights and whose incomes are much lower. Mm. Uh, whereas my sort of proposal would be, let's have all 100 of them come, but don't give them right to citizenship and actually create them during their stay in Sweden or Norway and elsewhere to be somewhat of a sub-citizen. So you see, there is a difference there. It might not feel many people very comfortable because they are de facto introducing discrimination, but it would be better solution for the 97 whom they basically have left out. So yeah. that's where I think that the, the trade-off is. Now, yes. going directly to your question. Uh, yes, I think that actually there is obviously, if we have an increase in the average level of um, uh, prosperity, and welfare, then of course, if you don't have absolute poverty, uh, to some extent, the gaps between you and Bill Gates are not the same as they were between, uh, uh, you know, people who were Louis exactly the peasants who were basically barely surviving or take serfs or slaves, even worse, who were actually uh, uh, at the subsistence level. And, and the kings. Uh, so it is true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, high uh, income and high wealth are also ways and tools to have political power. So that political power can be very un in unequal between uh, you and me and Jeff Bezos. I mean, the very fact that Jeff Bezos, for example, is the sole owner of the Washington Post is quite extraordinary because that means that the richest person in the world is the owner of the second most influential newspaper in the United States. So you can immediately see this really connection between wealth 
and political power. Or to take, mm. I mean, there are many examples like that, but you know, even recently in the US where you had Bloomberg going into a campaign, you know, he didn't succeed. He actually, of course, left the campaign relatively early, but he could have been successful. See, he could have become a president. There were also some rumors that he might become a secretary of the treasury. So you see this connection uh, then between uh, economic power and wealth and political power. So, you know, there are, I think, other, of course, uh, dimensions in which the uh, wealth or income play a role, uh, not simply in, you know, our ability, you know, we can all drive cars and we have, you know, warm homes. And obviously there, the difference between us and, and Bill Gates is not that big. No, that's that's really is a really interesting answer you you, get, you give there. But uh, still, it, I, I think a main feature is that the main thing is that that so many people today are are educated and informed about what's happening in the world and and in their lives and in politics, not least. So I mean, we can all uh, read what's happening in uh, on our computers. Maybe most people are educated, as I said. So is is that really the difference in political power, as you were talking about here? Is that has that access been? The, the fact that you have more political influence if you're rich, has that been exacerbated lately um, in accordance with the, 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 the increased inequality? Or, I mean, hasn't it always been like that? And isn't it even a little bit easier for people who are not rich today to, to actually take part in the political life because of the possibilities of, you know, knowing what's happening out there and, and uh, communicating uh, and whatever? I, I think actually I'm taking the U.S. example because first I know it better and secondly because it's so much more dramatic than the European, you know. Uh, uh, the funding and the European political campaigns, as you know, is different. Although yeah. one should not forget that whatever latest, I mean, la, uh, you know, uh, scandals in uh, European politics were, they were really related again every time to the funding, including Helmut Kohl, Sarkozy, you know. So it was not that people at the very top were stealing money for themselves or including Chirac also. Uh, they were actually, they needed money to fund the political campaigns. So really then you see that actually how important is the role of, of money in politics. But of course in the US it's even more uh, apparent, uh, clearer, simply because the political campaigns are uh, more open as there are no more limits to the amounts of donations or contributions that you can make. So th that was, uh, in my opinion, I mean, not my opinion, but actually I'm going really by the numbers, uh, the concentration of um, uh, political campaign contributions is so incredibly high that actually the concentration of wealth is a sort of modest compared to the concentration of political contributions. Because of course, these contributions really go from the very top of top of the income distribution of, of the wealth distribution rather, and they're really in, in more than in a proportion to wealth. So if your, your wealth is 1 billion and my wealth is 10 billion, uh, I would not contribute 10 more than you, 10 times, I would contribute 50 times more. You know, so that's where we see that really enormous concentration. 
And we also see from the political scientists, for the work on political scientists, we see uh, empirically again uh, the fact that the issues that matter to the upper middle class and not necessarily to the top 1%, but you know, to the upper middle class are much more frequently discussed and voted uh, in parliaments. And that also holds not only for the United States, but I've seen the same work for Germany, than the issues that matter to the people who are poor. So, you know, clearly the political influence is related to one's probably education, um, ability to formulate his or her opinions, and obviously to participate in the political uh, space. So I think that there is a positive correlation, if you will, between one's uh, income and wealth and political power. Okay, yeah, that's a a bit sad, actually, but uh, interesting. Yeah, I think we have to just uh, skip a couple of questions. I had too many questions on my list today, but uh, <laughs> and and talk a little bit about your your latest book here and what it what it uh, contains. You, uh, it's called Capitalism Alone, which is a salient title, of course, and uh, it tells it says what it's what it's about to some extent. And you note there that capitalism is in practice the only economic system that is left, and you ask the question what the prospects are for a fairer world when capitalism is the only game in town, as it were, what we have to work with. So what is your answer and what signs do you see? Uh, I mean, your answer to to (laughs) what um, the prospects are for a fair world and and what signs do you see now? Or for instance, if I just, if you just let me continue uh, formulating the question, maybe pinpointing it a little bit. Let's take an example: the all these protests that are happening now all over the globe, actually on every continent, in the streets, people are protesting in France, in Chile, in Russia, in uh, countries in Africa, in in Hong Kong, of course, and in and in the United States, and in many many places. Is that you you think a sign that uh, uh, people are in a way, waking up to to oppose injustices of different kinds, like economic inequality. Yes, I think. Although I think that the protests really have, uh, you know, if you look at all these protests over the last four years, they have had. Uh, uh, they have been numerous, but they were all driven by <laughs> somewhat different concerns in different countries. Uh, I'm not saying. Uh, at all. I'm not seeing them as challenging capitalism, capitalism as such, because as I define, uh, you know, capitalism in the book, and it's not my definition, it, it's, it's Marxist and Max Weber's, uh, this is really production, mostly on private means of, of, produ- of, of production, uh, using private capital, basically, uh, using hired labor, which means that labor is not doesn't have managerial role, but is being simply hired. So the managerial role belongs to the capital owners. And finally, decentralized coordination. So these protests do not question that particular mode of production or that particular system. You know, they question uh, inequality in that system. They question the way that uh, climate change is happening. They question unfairness. 
they question other issues or politically they question rule of absence of rule of law, for example. Uh, but they do not question in the way, for example, that communist regimes or communist movement rather question the organization of the economic space. When you had communists come to power and before coming to power, when they had their own ideology, they were questioning the very form of economic organization. They questioned private ownership of capital and they questioned the role of hired labor and they questioned the way that or the production should be organized because obviously, as, as we know, they, want, they organize it uh, centrally planned. And of course they had, you know, Nowadays, people who don't read the literature of the past, they think, well, this is crazy what they thought. But it was not. Actually, in those days, they actually believed that the, the centralized production would increase the total amount of output and wealth. And of course, they had good examples. You know, For example, if you centralize production of uh, electricity, if you centralize production of goods that you don't need uh, very great differences within the goods, and if you're able to uh, harness technology, and that was the idea also, that there should not be a protection right of patents, so that actually technology would be more easily accessible to everybody, then you're going to increase the production. So they had a rationale for that. It didn't turn out like that, but we have to realize that that was the view at the time. Now, we don't have any questioning of the similar kind. We don't have people who are saying differently, we would like to organize production within self-sufficient communes. You know, that would be another possibility. You have, as you know, communes like that in the Basque countries. You have also quite a lot of enterprises like that in Italy and even in the United States. So if they wanted to do that, they, they could actually. But we, I don't see that as being a protest. So it is really not a protest about the way that capitalism is organized. It is a protest about the results that capitalism generates in many respects, including inequality, climate change, and things, and political power. Uh, so that's what I would like to distinguish, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. there is, it's not, in my opinion, the, the fundamental questioning of the nature of capitalism. is the questioning of the uh, side effects or the products of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, of course, there's no clear, clear cut agenda from these protests. Uh, not even within specific countries, but there seemed to be a resentment. Uh, yes, broadly. resentment is there. And, you know, that's also related, I think, to a large extent in, in the Western countries to what we talked before about the elephant graph. But in other countries, it is also driven, I think, by the realization of um, uh, injustices that are actually, I think, much more apparent now with social media and ability to actually see what is happening. I mean, take mm -hmm. the example... And I'm a big fan of social media, and I have to say it immediately that I'm totally against what Twitter and Facebook have done with regard to Trump and others. And mm. uh, uh, because I think that the openness of social media is absolutely crucial. And let me give you the example, for example, of Navalny in Russia. You know, that uh, 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 video was seen, I think the latest was 70 million people. So it is an incredible ability of social media 
to actually generate information which in the past did not exist. And what I'm uh, very disappointed is that people actually uh, uh, work on two levels. They decide, well, these are actually guys whom I don't like, so I would like to turn them off. And these are other guys whom I like, and I really think that social media should be used by them. But we cannot do that like that, because then we basically have, we would eventually have what is called balkanization or social media, where actually you would have different groups. Left-wing media would be on one, you know, on one platform. The right media would be on the other platform. And we would not really uh, co um, communicate anymore with each other. Uh, so that was going to, speaking of protests, I think that actually social media have really played a very important role in uh, information, in dissemination of information. Oh yes, uh, do you do you see do you envisage envisage some kind of grassroots movement? Uh, maybe not not uh, uh, organized in an organized form, but but uh, or, or or maybe several different organizations of grassroots initiatives to create something perhaps a little bit different than the the, the traditional meritocratic liberal capitalism as you are as you are talking about. That we have in the in Western Europe and the United States, something maybe that capitalism is at the core of of it, of, of a new system, but but it's uh, functioning in a different way, and the distribution of wealth works uh, more smoothly and and, and better for, for all. Do you think? Can you can you envisage that kind of change, that is not a top down change, but more bottom up? Yes, I see two, two different, at least two different strands of uh, movements in those directions. Uh, one is the movement of uh, stakeholders, which would, of course, replace the concentration of shareholders as the sole recipients or the sole uh, uh, factor influencing uh, economic decision making within the enterprises. Uh, I think it's actually, it, I know that uh, Klaus Schwab has had a recent book on, on uh, on um, uh, stakeholders. Um, I see the point of that. I uh, have to say that I'm doubtful of that because ultimately when the chips are down and where you have to decide at the margin whether you want to please maybe the customers or some other stakeholders who are relatively vague as opposed to the shareholders who can actually kick you out from your management role, I think that ultimately you would have to actually uh, go with, with shareholders' interest. But it could be that, uh, you know, some blunting of that interest may be in the long-term advantage of the companies that do it. You know, you can buy some goodwill. Uh, I think also the introduction of uh, uh, labor or workers in some management positions like code determination in Germany has generally been proven good because obviously it's good even for productivity of the workforce. So these are really elements that I see that are positive. Mm. And also the other element is the, the green economy. Now there I'm much more skeptical because I have been in disagreement with people who talked about degrowth uh, for many reasons that I then don't want to go into now. I think it is an illusion and actually that would not be politically acceptable in the West, uh, nor would it actually be fair to the people in the rest of the world who would actually have to uh, live at the level of income that they have now. Uh, but uh, it, this is a movement. Uh, as I said, I am not sure that that movement would go very far uh, except by using the traditional economic tools 
of subsidization and taxation. So I don't see them as creating something like a new world economy, uh, although sometimes they claim that's what they are doing. But mm. as I said, I'm skeptical on that. Okay. I don't, I don't know if you've, re- if you've read uh, Rutger Bregman's book, uh, Humankind, which came out recently, but uh, I, I did it and I'm, I was a, a bit inspired by that. And uh, have, having read that, one might suspect that, that capitalism, the idea of capitalism is, in a way, maybe based on, on false assumptions of human beings' uh, inherent greed. Uh, and you're familiar with, of course, Elinor Ostrom's uh, uh, work on um, the uh, on um, uh, commons uh, earlier there, there's been talk about the tragedy of the commons if nobody owns an area it's going to be chaos and uh, you need order and, uh, and, and 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 people are greedy but maybe people aren't greedy people are want to just want to do good stuff and they want to be friends with <laughs> with people and and love people and 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 uh, and have a, have a nice life. They don't. They, maybe they're not greedy. Maybe that's why capitalism isn't really viable in the long run. I mean, the, the traditional form of capitalism that we know of today. No, I agree with you. And actually, that's something that I make a, a point of in capitalism alone. If uh, our value system were to be changed, not entirely overhauled, but to be changed in such a way that really acquisition of wealth is not really our priority over priorities. Uh, yes, I think that actually capitalism would change, you know, because uh, the, the, the power of capitalism has been that it put together in a very consistent fashion the pursuit of profit by the enterprises and the pursuit of wealth by the individuals. So these two really parts go very well together and that, are, that made capitalism strong because in our ordinary life, on a, with daily actions, we were supporting the value system which made capitalism grow and expand. Now, if we were to be less concerned about that, uh, if to use Adam Smith again, if we were more people from the theory of moral sentiments and less people from the wealth of nations, uh, yes, we would actually, uh, you know, uh, change the way that we lead our lives. We would work lo- less. We would be less interested in material advantages, and maybe we would be more interested, I don't know, in going to concerts, having nice discussions, and so on. So, well, that's what that, people love to do. <laughs> yes, that they sounds do, like yes. a beautiful but life. Too. Very often they say that, but also they are actually very keen when you look at the, at the fact that they uh, fight very much for every improvement in their you know, lives, for their improvement in wages. They you know, work hard. Uh, you know, it's, uh, take, I'm not only talking about the West, but take China, for example, where they have, they're actually not trying to make people work a little bit less because the, the Chinese kind of a way was so-called 996, which meant that you work from nine in the morning until nine at night and you do it six, six days a week. And oh my God, it is so much, you know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, let me just put this. Tell you one anecdote. <clears throat> when, of course, Europeans much work much less now than the Chinese. But I remember in the 1980s when I was in the World Bank and I had discussion, similar discussion in Africa. Many people in Africa were totally shocked and appalled how much Europeans work. 
because mm. uh, African bureaucracy was really working and probably still working, you know, four or five hours a day and Europeans were working like seven or eight. And they were just saying, well, you know, we cannot compete with you guys. You're just working too much. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. There is so much to talk about, but, but time flies. Uh, so I just have to say thank you, Branko Milanovic. Many, many thanks for joining the show. Uh, it's been extremely interesting and, and rewarding. And, and good luck with your research. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was very much fun. Uh, thanks for excellent questions. And as you said, we could have had it for another hour at least. But I think it was really, it was fun actually being here. Thank you.